Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. A definition of inerrancy is that when all the facts are known, the Bible will prove itself to be without error in all matters that it covers, not only matters theological and moral, but also matters historical, geographical, and scientific. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Ephesians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 20, in a message titled, The Foundation of the Word. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Okay, well, as many of you know, we are making our way through our study in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and we finished the second chapter, but I wanted to come back and consider Paul's statement that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so we're going to do that today, and in doing that, we're going to really be talking about the supremacy of the scripture. We're going to talk about the inspiration of the Bible and the uh, inerrancy of the scripture and the authority of the word. And, uh, you know, as, as we were teaching through the section a few weeks ago, it just sort of one of those moments where the Lord just flashed on me to come back to this passage here and to do this because uh, we're living in a time when probably like uh, no other time, the Bible is under attack uh, from the philosophers and from the to uh, some extent, the scientific community, the intellectuals in our culture, people are constantly attacking the word and questioning uh, the veracity of it and uh, challenging as to whether we can actually, you know, believe it to be the word of God. So it's important that we ourselves have confidence in the scriptures and the Bible, that it is the word of God. And it's also important for us to be able to respond to those kinds of things when they come our way. So that's my objective today, to take a look at the scriptures and to see for ourselves how they are indeed God's word. Uh, John Stott had a great paragraph. I want to start off with that in a reference to Ephesians 2.20 here where Paul says that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He said, in practical terms, this means that the church is built on the New Testament scriptures. They are the church's foundation documents. And just as a foundation cannot be tampered with once it has been laid and the superstructure is being built upon it, so the New Testament foundation of the church is inviolable and cannot be changed by any additions subtractions or modifications. The church stands or falls by its loyal dependence on the foundation truths which God revealed to his apostles and prophets and which are now preserved for us in the New Testament scriptures. That's what the apostle is referring to here. We have this foundation of the scriptures 
And although he's referring primarily to the New Testament scriptures, we can include the entirety of scripture here because the apostles obviously and the prophets, they drew from the Old Testament. So it is our belief as Christians that the Bible alone is God's special revelation to man. Only the Bible. There are other books. Uh, there are other groups, obviously. There are other religions, and they claim divine inspiration for their writings. But we as Christians believe that the Bible alone is God's special revelation to man, and that it is inspired and inerrant and authoritative. And so we want to look at each one of these things, beginning with the inspiration of Scripture. So when we say that the Bible is inspired, and of course the Bible says that regarding itself, First Timothy, Second uh, Timothy, excuse me, three sixteen, Paul says, "For all Scripture is given by inspiration of God." Now, when we're talking about inspired, we don't mean simply that the Bible is inspiring. Now, the Bible is inspiring. You, you read the scriptures and you definitely get inspired. But when we say we believe in, in biblical inspiration, that's not what we're talking about. Nor do we mean that the Bible is inspired in a similar way to how a great poet or a composer might be inspired. And we think of poetry or uh, musical composition. You think, wow, that you know, that person was inspired. They might even say, I just felt this burst of inspiration and that's how this poem came forth. Well, we're not talking about that because that's originating within the person. When we're talking about inspiration in the biblical sense, what we mean is that the writers of scripture were controlled by the Holy Spirit in such a way that they wrote not their own thoughts, but God's thoughts, not even their own words, but God's words. Peter put it beautifully. He said, for prophecy, and here he's using prophecy uh, to speak just of scripture in general, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's one of those passages in scripture that, that tell us that the, the scriptures, prophecy did not come by the will of man, but holy men were moved. Uh, Paul, when he says all scripture is given by inspiration of God in Second Timothy there, literally it's all scripture is God breathed. And so the idea that, that God breathed on the author. So even though they wrote uh, with their own pens and to some degree, their own experiences and personalities and things were part of this process, what they communicated to us was not their own thoughts, but they were the very thoughts of God in the very words that God would have them communicated. That's what we believe when we talk about uh, the Bible being the inspired word of God. Now, being the inspired word of God, if this book is indeed inspired by God, then we would also have to conclude that it is inerrant. The word inerrant simply means without error. So there are no errors in the Bible. There are no mistakes uh, historically or spiritually or morally or even geographically or, or scientifically. The Bible is inerrant. It w is without error. And so uh, a definition of inerrancy is that 
when all the facts are known, the Bible will prove itself to be without error in all matters that it covers, not only matters theological and moral, but also matters historical, geographical, and scientific. The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. See, there are some people that will say, now look, the Bible's okay when it comes to theological things, that's what you use it for, but you can't trust it historically, you can't trust it scientifically, uh, that simply isn't true. When we talk about inerrancy, we're saying that the Bible is uh, without error in every area. There, there are no places where the Bible contains error. That is the traditional understanding of inerrancy. It's important to understand the traditional meaning of inerrancy because a new generation of scholars have arisen in evangelicalism. Evangelicalism is the body of Christians that are supposed to believe the Bible is the word of God. But there's a new generation of scholars that have arisen in evangelicalism claiming that you can have myths, legends, and embellishments in the biblical text, and this doesn't affect inerrancy. They say, oh, we still believe in inerrancy, but we also believe that the Bible includes certain myths and legends, and there were times when the authors uh, embellished things to make the story more exciting or you know, maybe more believable or something like that. Let me give you a few examples of what some of these men are saying. Uh, when Matthew stated in uh, the 27th chapter of his gospel that the dead saints were raised after the resurrection of Jesus and seen walking in the streets of Jerusalem, they, they say that, that Matthew inserted this for effect. Uh, this didn't actually happen, but it just made the story better. And so uh, he decided to include that. They say that when Jesus told Peter in regard to taxes, uh, go down to the lake, cast in your line, catch a fish. When you pull the fish out, it'll have a coin in its mouth. Take that coin and pay both your taxes and mine. Uh, they say, oh, no, that, that didn't really happen. That's a myth that was just inserted into there. That was just helped, again, enhance the story. They would say that the reference by Jesus to Jonah being three days and three nights in the heart or in the belly of the great fish, they would say, well, that doesn't mean that that necessarily really happened. It was just, it was a story that was part of the culture and it was uh, a myth that was part of the culture, but everybody knew it. So Jesus just used it as a reference point. He didn't really believe that Jonah uh, spent three days and three nights in the heart of a fish. And there are many other places where they would do similar things. So here's the question. How is this reasoning justified? How do, how do they justify this? Because they're claiming to be conservative evangelical scholars. They're claiming to believe the scriptures. And I would say that they, that, that claim's valid. I think they do believe the scriptures. But yet they're also uh, saying that the scriptures have myths and legends and um, embellishments. So how did they come to this? Well, this is how they've come to it. I'll just quote to you from one uh, well-known author in that camp. He said, the gospels belong to the genre of Greco-Roman biography. Bios, Greco-Roman biography, offered the ancient biographer great flexibility for rearranging material and inventing speeches and often included legend. Because Bios 
was a flexible genre, it is often difficult to determine where history ends and legend begins. So how is it that these guys come to this position? They come to this position because they say, well, uh, the New Testament is, is it's like Greco-Roman biography. It's a certain genre of writing. And in that genre, this is what they did. So the New Testament writers, they just did what everybody else did at the time. And just like these uh, others uh, at the time would bring in legends and myths and they would feel free to embellish. So the New Testament writers did that as well. So they're, they're using this, um, th this genre idea to support their position. But you can argue in many ways against their position. First of all, you can argue against the idea that the Romans are of the genre of the Greco-Roman biography because uh, the New Testament documents were written by Jews and they have much more similarity to the Old Testament text than they do to the Greco-Roman biography. So you, I think you could build a good argument against their theory there. But, but also this is, this is just simply a theory that they have. And in the academic world, there's strong pressure in the academic world to conform to academia, to conform to what people are saying in the intellectual community. And in the academic community, there is strong opposition and always has been to the miraculous aspects of the Bible. And so they have, um, from the very beginning of the attack upon the Bible, they've always sought to undermine the portions of scripture that speak of the, the obviously miraculous things. And, and in the end, uh, this is what they say. They say, well, you have to know the author's intent. You can't really take what they said at face value. You've got to know what they were thinking. Now, how in the world are you gonna know what the author was thinking unless he communicated what he was thinking? And so the question that you ask them is, okay, well, how do you decide in the end? Uh, it, it's, to, it's difficult to determine where history ends and legend begins. How do you decide where, where history does end and legend begins, if that's the case? And you know how they decide? They basically decide on things that they think should be there and things that they don't think should be there. So this story about the dead saints rising and walking around the streets of Jerusalem, that just seems way too weird. So we're gonna say that that was a myth. On what basis? We just think it would be a myth because it's too weird for us. Now, I'm sorry, but I'm not gonna take that as a valid argument. You know, I've written a few books and um, you know, the intent of the author, you know what I do as an author? I, I wanna communicate what, what I, you know, my intention is what I wrote in the book. Why write a book if you, if you don't uh, express your intentions? That's the whole point. You want people to get what you're thinking or saying. The Bible means what it says and it says what it means and we can have absolute confidence in that. So we completely reject this idea of the gospels and the, and the New Testament text being of this genre of the Greco-Roman biography and therefore we, you know, we just accept the fact that there are these embellishments and myths and so forth. No, we believe that as weird as it is that the dead saints were walking the streets of Jerusalem, that's what they were doing. But is that any more weird than Lazarus being raised from a tomb by Jesus? Is it any more weird than Jesus himself rising from the dead? The thing that I find so ironic is the person who kind of promoted this idea that the, the resurrection of the saints 
uh, was mythological. This guy wrote a 700-page book on the resurrection of Jesus, a very convincing book, a good book. And then he ruined it by putting this in because the question then could easily be asked, well, look, if this is a myth, then why isn't your account of the resurrection of Jesus a myth? What's the difference? So this is not belief in inerrancy. If someone says, well, I believe the Bible is without error, but it does have falsehoods in it, it does have myths and legends and embellishments, then that person doesn't believe in inerrancy. But we believe that the Bible is inerrant, meaning once again that when all the facts are known, the scriptures will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical, or life sciences. You see, it's not just, oh, well, the Bible's fine when it comes to spiritual things, but we can't trust it historically, geographically, scientifically. If you can't trust it to speak to you about the things on earth, how can you trust it to speak to you about the things in heaven? So we believe in an inerrant scripture, and that leads us logically to believing in the authority of scripture. If I believe that the Bible is the inspired inerrant word of God, then I am going to believe in its authority. And the church collectively is under the authority of scripture. We as individual Christians are under the authority of scripture, meaning that the Bible is the final word for faith and practice for us as God's people. So we are under the authority of scripture. The church is built on the foundation of the scriptures. We are submitted to the authority of the word. And wherever in history the church has been submitted to the authority of the word, the church has done well. The church has prospered in the spiritual sense and been blessed and and been powerful and impacted the world. Wherever the church has come out from under the authority of scripture, in other words, saying, well, you know, I don't believe that the Bible really is totally the word of God. These uh, ideas that we're talking about here, wherever that's happened, the church has gone south every single time. And so we believe in the authority of scripture. We believe in the Bible's claim to inspiration. Let me quote to you. I've alluded to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Let me quote it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, or as I said, uh, God breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So this is what we believe as Christians. We believe in the inspiration of scripture. But some people would say, well, that's just circular reasoning. You're using the Bible to support your argument. You're using just because the Bible says it's inspired, you're saying, well, the Bible says it's inspired, therefore it's inspired. But it's not really like that. You see, because the Bible does make the claim to inspiration, but the claim itself is not sufficient, really, is it? There's, there's got to be some evidence that, that there really is inspiration. A person can claim anything, but is there proof behind the claim? But you see, the Bible, the beautiful thing about the scripture is it doesn't just make that statement, the Bible is inspired, period. Don't ask any questions. Don't research it. Don't try to find out if it's true. Just accept it. But the Bible's not like that. 
The Bible tells us that it's inspired, but then we have many infallible proofs to support that claim. And so that's what we want to do in the remainder of our time. I want to show you the proofs for, informa- uh, for inspiration. So we'll get to the proofs lastly, but uh, because there's, uh, God has built into the Bible proof of its inspiration. That's the beautiful thing about it. He's built it right into the text itself. But before we look at the proofs, let's look at the arguments. And there are many, but I'm just going to give you four arguments in support of the divine inspiration of Scripture. So these arguments that I'm going to present right now, they do not prove inspiration, but I think they bolster the case. They lend support to the argument. So the first is the indestructibility of the Bible. Do you know that the Bible, like no other book in history, um, there, there have been more attempts to destroy the scriptures than any other book ever, and far beyond any other book. More attempts by emperors and kings and rulers and political parties and so forth, all, all the way back to biblical times right up to the current time that we're living in. It's a very small number of books that remain in circulation for 100 years. If you find a book that was written over 100 years ago today that's, that's still being sold, that's a rarity. But to find books that survive uh, for 1,000 years, that is minute. The number of those are minute. Now, uh, there are some. You can, you can find some today. There, there still are a few. But none of them have ever had the kind of opposition to them like the Bible has. Now, you could go to Barnes & Noble after church today, and you could pick up Homer's Iliad. Uh, You could pick up the writings of Plato or Aristotle. Uh, You could pick up the writings of Augustine. So those books have survived more than a 1,000 years, but there was no great effort to wipe those books out. There was never a time when an emperor said, we've got to get rid of the Iliad. Homer's Iliad, we've got to destroy that. We've got to find all the copies and burn them. Uh, But that's exactly what the Roman emperors did with the Christian scriptures. So here's the amazing thing about the Bible. It is today in the 21st century, the most distributed and the best-selling book of all time. It remains. Year after year, the Bible is the number one bestseller And that just goes on and on and on. And it not just being sold, but distributed and and sought after. So the indestructibility of scripture, the, the many efforts to destroy the scriptures have failed. I think that that's a a significant argument in favor of biblical inspiration, although it doesn't prove it, but there's also the historical veracity of the Bible. The historical veracity. In other words, that the Bible is accurate historically. Now, this uh, many intellectuals, many uh, scholars over the years have uh, come against this idea and said that the Bible is full of historical errors. And many, many attempts have been made over the past couple of hundred years, especially to disprove the scriptures and to show that they were historically inaccurate. 
But as a Time Magazine article said some years ago, after more than two centuries of facing the heaviest scientific guns that could be brought to bear, the Bible has survived and is perhaps better for the siege. the month of November, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. The world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly at war against us Christians, and sometimes we feel defeated, and at others we give in to the pressures of sin and compromise. But in those times, we should not expect harshness from heaven. We can expect the gentleness of Christ to draw us in all the more, because it is God who sets the terms by which He loves us, no matter how unlovable we think we might be. So no matter what your sin or how long you've been sinning, Jesus will never cast you out. If you need to be encouraged about Jesus' unfailing love for you, or if you know someone that needs to know Jesus' love for them, we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Ephesians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.